Today is a, is a day when I want to show you a very special musical video that I came across several months ago, and I thought instantly this would be great for Mother's Day. And then there, I also came across a behind-the-scenes look of how that musical video was made. So three things are going to happen at the remainder of our service. I'm going to show you the little four or five minute clip how this video was made. It's an oratorio that was written by Kathy Lee Gifford and sung by Nicole C. Mullen. We didn't have time for a countdown this morning because the power is out. Nicole Mullen wrote the uh, Dove Song of the Year in 2001. I know my Redeemer lives, that song. You'll recognize her voice. Um, it, it's a powerful, moving oratorio that's about 11 minutes in length. It tells the story of Hagar and Ruth and David and Mary Magdalene. It's very powerful. We're going to end the service with that. But I also want you to see a five-minute video of how they made that as they tell the story of the special things God did in making that video called The God Who Sees. But in between those, we're just going to show the video, and then in between the, that and the end video, I want you to hear Shannon's story. I usually get here about 8.30, and she comes shortly after that on Sunday mornings, and sometimes while we're waiting for the equipment to turn on and whatnot, we chat a little bit. And one time she was just telling me some of her experience, and it was so powerful and so moving, I said, you have to share that with our congregation sometime. Would you do that? And she said, sure. Probably the first time you've shared this story, second time to share this, so this isn't something she's done a whole lot. And I don't want her to feel rushed, but I know you're going to be blessed by it before I get out of the way. So I'm introducing her now, but we're going to show a video, then Shannon, and then the, the music video to conclude the service. But I just want you to know how much this young lady means to me. I'm blessed with two wonderful daughters and two wonderful daughters-in-law. And Shannon is a daughter in the faith to me that I love very dearly. She has been a great blessing to this body and has just continued to blossom. She already was gifted and talented and a worshiper and all of those things, but she has really blossomed this last year or so in her capacity, arranging uh, the, the song set each, each week, and along with Georgia and Megan and Mark and Tiffany and Stevie, the part of our praise team that really help us to have such wonderful worship each Sunday. Shannon uh, is the one that orchestrates that and, and gets things ready and has learned a lot about some of the technical side of stuff too. She blesses us with her worshiper's heart that makes it not only very easy for the preacher to preach, but very easy for all of us to hear what, what God says. And she's not coming just yet, but I want us to welcome her anyway. I love her so much. I'm so proud of her and so thankful for for this daughter of the house and daughter in the faith and a wonderful mother and a new bride as of April 16th, Mrs. OKK, and she's OKK with me. She's not coming just yet, but can we put our hands together and tell Shannon how much we love her this morning? I have the chills. It's a great song, which we will hear. Um, well, good morning. Um, those very kind words, Pastor Moore. Thank you very much. 
Um, I am Shannon OKK. Uh, I am a newlywed, and I am a mother of a nine-year-old boy, and I am a teacher, uh, which should scare you a little, because if any of you get out of line, anybody falls asleep, I will call home. I'm looking at you, Georgia. I'm looking at you. I will, I will call home. <laughs> Okay, uh, so this morning I asked Pastor Moore if he asked me to share my story today because it's Mental Health Awareness Month. And he actually, that was not the reason that he had asked me, but it just works out so perfectly because my story is one of a mental health battle. Um, I know many of you in this room have been through things that I have never experienced um, probably some far worse things than I have ever had to deal with. Um, and I applaud you for being in church. You, God has helped you to overcome, just as God has helped me to overcome to be standing before you today. If you had told me nine years ago I would still be alive, I probably wouldn't have even believed it. Um, so with that being said, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, my testimony, what I've been through, one of my main struggles the biggest thing that I've had to overcome was the battle for my own mental health, my own sanity. Um, a little background, I uh, grew up here in Trumbull, well, in Trumbull County, and I had a pretty normal upbringing. Um, not too much to complain about, except I always worried about things. I had very bad anxiety, but when you're a child, you don't really know that there's anything abnormal about that. You just think everybody worries about things. But I worried all the time about things. My parents watched the news constantly, and there was always some, something new to worry about. And so I did. I worried constantly as a child, definite uh, anxiety. And I never, you know, no one ever told me anything was wrong with that. I never got any help, so I just endured. And I didn't really enjoy life. I, didn't, I wasn't a happy child. I, I would say I did, just kind of made it through life um, up until I got to be about my early 20s. I just kind, of, just kind of endured life. When I got into my early 20s, I met the man who would become the father of my son. And for the first time in my life, I was actually really happy. I moved to Erie, where he lived, to be with him. Now, he wasn't a Christian. He was an atheist, but I didn't. I wasn't really living for God at the time, so it didn't, didn't really bother me. And we built this nice life up in Erie, and I was so happy. I had a great job and was in the best shape of my life, and I was just so happy and thriving. And then I found out I was pregnant, and this was the icing on the cake that was already perfect to begin with. This was just the, the pinnacle. This was the most happy I could have ever been in my entire life when, that day that I found out I was pregnant. But that joy was short-lived because uh, with people who suffer from anxiety, all of the anxiety came flooding in on me. Now I had an unborn child to worry about. And oh, all the what-ifs and I'm, I'm responsible for protecting this child, and I can't even see him yet. I don't, you know, it was so overwhelming, the anxiety. It was first I worried that I would have a miscarriage, and I didn't even tell anyone I was pregnant until I was out of the first trimester because I was so terrified I'd have a miscarriage. Then um, came a scare with rubella. I'm not sure if you remember the MMR vaccine that you get as a child. 
Um, for some reason, when you're pregnant, they test you to see if you're immune to MMR, to measles, mumps, and rubella. And for some reason, I wasn't immune, um, which is odd because I had been vaccinated. So the doctors thought it was strange, so they retested me. And um, that time it came back that I was immune. I did have antibodies. And rubella, the German measles, is pretty much eradicated in the U.S., but it's one of the worst possible things that you could contract while you're pregnant because it causes every kind of birth defect you can imagine and blindness, deafness, mental retardation. It's, it's a horrible thing um, that many children were born with before the vaccine came out. And because I wasn't immune and then all of a sudden I was immune, I assumed I had contracted the virus. Now, that is pretty, pretty big of a stretch since it doesn't really exist in the US. But when you have anxiety and you get a thought in your head, as crazy as it is, you, you can take it to the bank. I mean, in your mind, it's the truth. So I was terrified. I had picked up this virus because I, I was working with foreign, foreigners, uh, refugees, and I assumed, okay, they probably weren't vaccinated. When they came, I picked up this virus. And so I was terrified about this to the point I was able to seek out um, a doctor, uh, a specialist in the field, who sat down with me and was able to tell me, you know, you know what, I don't think, you know, it's very, very unlikely you would have contracted this disease. It's just a strange blood test result, but I'm pretty sure you're going to be okay. So I breathed a sigh of relief for about a day or two, and then it was time for more blood work, you know, random blood work you get when you're pregnant, and um, this time my white blood cell count was through the roof. And now this was a more legitimate cause for concern. As the uh, lab report came onto my phone, um, I saw the number, the white blood cell count, and then next to it, it said high, and then next to it, it said panic. It literally said panic on the lab result. And so what did I do? I panicked. So I called the doctor and I said, you know, my white blood cell, they said, we know you need to come in. It's probably a mistake. We need to have your, you know, blood tested again, had it tested again, came back even higher, it said panic. They said, okay, you need to come in again, had it tested again. This time it was even higher and still saying panic. So at this point, you know, of course I've Googled it and by now, yeah, I'm sure you most of you know, when you Google white blood cell count, what, what, what's Google going to tell you? Anybody know? Leukemia. So at this point, I'm convinced I have leukemia. And the doctors basically confirmed it by telling me I needed to go to the cancer center. Um, now, not because I had leukemia, but because I needed to see a blood doctor, and a hematologist, and they work out of cancer centers. So... You know, here I am, like six months pregnant and in my 20s, and I'm, I'm at the cancer center, and it's a terrifying place to be. And the doctor, you know, takes a look at my blood under the microscope, and he says, yeah, your white blood cell count is extremely elevated, but your blood looks normal under the microscope. I don't think you have acute leukemia. He said, but I can't rule out chronic leukemia. I'm going to need to see you repeatedly throughout the course of the rest of your pregnancy to make sure it's not um, chronic leukemia. So I thought, okay, well, I'll get to live to see my child born, but I won't live much longer after that. This is the, the mind of someone with anxiety, of course. So um, by this point, um, I decided to come back to Ohio. 
Um, I had still been in Erie. I came back to Ohio to finish out my pregnancy in Ohio and stay with my parents. And the anxiety of this started to really, really take its toll on me. I had nothing but time on my hands to pace around, wring my hands, research things, and check for symptoms. That's what my life revolved around for a, a good month, was just taking my temperature, researching, and pacing, and crying, and praying. And it was just awful. Um, so this continued throughout the rest of my pregnancy. Um, by about maybe three weeks or so, till my it was about three weeks till my due date, I had another appointment at the cancer center, and the doctor was able to tell me, okay, we can rule out chronic leukemia. Your body just had a strange reaction to the pregnancy. Your white blood cell count should just come back down to normal after you give birth, which is amazing news, right? Amazing news. But I was so far gone with that anxiety that there was, I didn't know how to not be worried anymore. It did not, I did not feel the weight lift off my shoulders. I only just kept getting worse because I was just now, you know, I'm, I'm about to have a baby. I don't know what I'm doing and I'm just terrified. I've been through all this. I don't know what I'm doing. And I was so horrified. I stopped being able to sleep. Like I would try to sleep and whatever brain chemicals in your brain need to fire for you to fall asleep weren't happening. So I just, I'd close my eyes and I'd immediately wake back up. I started to lose my appetite and I started to just feel very, very sickly as it uh, led up to my pregnancy. Um, it was about two and a half weeks till I was due and I woke, I, I, I mean, I didn't wake up, I hadn't slept. I, had, I was in so much pain from not sleeping, and I was just, I told my dad, I said, I need to go to the hospital. I just, something's not right. I don't feel right. I just can't do this another day. So he took me to the hospital, and they um, checked my blood pressure, and my blood pressure was extremely elevated. Now, of course, that's probably due to lack of sleep and anxiety, and they said I needed to be induced. So I was sent up to labor and delivery, and I was induced, and 11 hours later, I welcomed my son, Keegan, into the world. And for a few moments, I felt that, you know, joy and happiness of being a mother. And I expected that all the fear and anxiety and all of that was all due to hormones, and as soon as I gave birth, I would just feel normal again. And it couldn't have been any further from the truth. By the time it was, uh, I was ready to leave the hospital, I had not slept after, you know, days of not sleeping and then giving birth and not sleeping. I was in so much pain and not eating because um, I just couldn't, I just couldn't eat. I would left the hospital and I was just in tears because I was scared, I was confused, I was overwhelmed, I was tired. And so when we got home, my mom said, okay, I'm going to take care of Keegan for you, and you just need to focus on getting your strength back and getting healthy again. So she, thank God, Mother's Day, she took care of my son, and my main goal was to find a quiet room in the house and, and try to sleep to try to, you know, regain my strength. So I would lie down, and I would just lie there. No sleep would come. And then just hours would go by, hours would go by, hours would go by, the day would go by. I would try to sleep again, and I could not sleep. And then I would try to eat, and I, I couldn't eat. 
and I would try to sleep and I couldn't. And it got to the point where my body started to, I could feel my body shutting down. I could no longer, I couldn't hold my son because I didn't have the strength to lift my arms. I barely had the strength to walk, you know, because without sleep, your body can't restore itself. So I felt myself shutting down. And when I would try to eat I, my muscles, I couldn't swallow the food. I would just kind of cough it up because my muscles just didn't have the strength anymore. And I didn't know what to do. My mom didn't know what to do. Um, you know, I was just hoping to get better. I didn't know. Um, by ten, the 10th day after giving birth, it was time to see the OBGYN again, um, you know, postpartum visit. And I walked into the, her office, and she said, I need to talk to you and alone. And she pulled me aside. She said, you need to go to the hospital right away. You're not OK. And I was already crying. I said, I know I'm not okay. I just don't know what to do. Like, I can't eat. I can't sleep. And, and she said, you need to go right to the hospital. So I went to the hospital. And thank God I went that day. Because by the time I got there, I was starting to have hallucinations and delusions. I was starting to, um, the, the sleep deprivation and whatever was going on with me had caused me to start to lose touch with reality. So by the time I got to the hospital, um, they admitted me to the psychiatric ward due to the nature of my symptoms, which is a scary place. And um, I definitely belonged there at that point in time because what, the things I was saying, they weren't making sense. And I was pretty much out of it. I, I, it was awful. And so I spent four days there as they tried to find a medicine that would put me to sleep. The psychiatrist had prescribed different things, none of which worked. The only thing that ended up working was the kind of medication that they give to inpatients who become so violent and out of control that they need to be immediately tranquilized. That was the only thing that would put me to sleep for like four hours at a time. So um, they don't usually ever send a person home on a prescription for that. That's something that they only use, you know, inpatient. But, you know, they knew I needed to get back home. So they gave me a prescription for this very powerful medicine. And the goal was to get me off of it, you know, as soon as possible. So after four days in the psychiatric ward, I had finally had enough sleep um, to, to function. And I started seeing a doctor um, outpatient. And they started, you know, trying out different medicines to get me to, you know, sleep and a regular schedule and whatnot. And nothing seemed to be working. So they had me on and off all different kinds of medications. And I didn't realize it then. It's only now. Hindsight is twenty twenty. I realized that all of the meds that they were changing and adding and adjusting were affecting me, you know, psychologically. For those several months that I was on and off all different kinds of meds, I had basically lost my sanity. I started having symptoms that I can't even describe to a sane individual because you've never experienced them before. I started having anxiety like you wouldn't believe. I felt the ur like the urge to pull my hair. I felt the urge to rip my skin off. At one point, I thought I was dead. At one point, I was convinced I was dead. Now, if this sounds crazy to you, it's because it is. I was I was experiencing psychosis, insanity. 
and it lasted for months. Now, I was just sane enough to know that I wasn't sane, which is probably the worst place to be because you're desperately trying to fight your way back to your normal sense of, you know, sanity, but you know you, you're, you're not there. You can't. And it's terrifying, and you're, you're just always... I was crying all the time, and I was pacing. I'd wring my hands. I'd pull my hair. I'd, I mean, it was awful. And this lasted for months. And it got to the point where I was like, I cannot live like this anymore. I can't live like this. My son deserves better. And so I started researching suicide. Now, I wasn't ready for suicide, but I was doing the research. And I was starting to warm up to that idea that that might have to be my, my only way out. Because there was, the symptoms were so severe. It, there were times when I couldn't even pray because I didn't even have the wherewithal to do, to do so. I didn't know what was reality and what wasn't. Um, so after several months of this, like I said, I, I started researching suicide and I thought I'm gonna try one last thing. Um, I'm gonna go back to the psychiatric ward. So I went back to the psychiatric ward, a different one this time. And this time I was there for 12 days. And it's awful because I have a newborn son at home and I can't even see him. They would sneak him in to see me um, as I'd pace around in my robe and my hair all matted, you know. Um, you wouldn't have recognized me. And I convinced them to give me electroconvulsive therapy. I don't know if anybody's heard of that or familiar with that. It's, it's reserved for the most severe psychiatric patients where they put you uh, under anesthesia. They put electrodes on your head, on your brain, to give you a seizure. And when you wake up from the seizure, you're supposed to feel better and your brain function is supposed to improve. So I had that done uh, four different times. And it did help some, but not without side effects. It causes memory loss. Um, so I lost a good six months of my memories, which included basically giving birth. Um, so that's the, those, those details are very fuzzy to me um, of giving birth. But um, after four rounds of that, um, I came home from the hospital and I didn't feel great, but I felt like, okay, I, I have to, this, this, is, this is as good as it's going to get, and I have to find a way to live like this. So I, you know, I tried, I went back to work, I, I, met, I went back to Erie, and, you know, I was, I was barely hanging on, but I was just determined I was going to find a way to live as someone who was just barely hanging on. And um, I relied heavily on my faith at that point. Um, now, my son's father, who was an atheist, was not helpful at all. You know, he would kind of mock me if I prayed and was not helpful, and then our relationship ended up ending. But while I was in Erie, the doctor that I found there um, was phenomenal. I, I think she was an angel. She prescribed a, a cocktail of psychiatric medications that what, what my body needed at the time, and um, they brought me back to life, basically. I started to feel human again. I was able to get back to work and back to life. And um, there were very strong medications that they you know, didn't want me to stay on for too long. And it was a long process of you know, coming off all of those medications 
And finally, you know, being to where I am now, where I don't take anything, and I am no longer depressed or, <laughs> or in, you know, in a state of psychosis or suffering from anxiety, I am completely healed of all of that, which I never, never would have thought when I was pacing around a psychiatric ward that I could ever get to back back to sanity let alone being able to tell my story so i thank god i praise god for his healing i praise god for remembering me see it was so difficult because i couldn't feel god i'll be honest with you i could not feel god's presence i could not feel the comfort i felt abandoned I absolutely felt abandoned. And in the song that we're going to be hearing, we hear about um, Hagar, who um, was wandering in the desert. She felt abandoned. She was a single mother, and she had been sent away by her family. That abandonment, I felt it so strongly. But the thing is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you can feel and what you can't. What matters is that God is there, and he is a God who sees. He never took his eye off of me. Even when I was so confused and lost and in darkness and wondering if I would ever get out of it, God never took his eyes off of me. He never stopped thinking about me. And he had a plan to work all things together for my good. And so by the grace of God, I'm able to share this story. And I'm, I'm glad I'm able to share it on uh, Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, because I know, if, you know, the statistics say 1 in 10 will suffer from some sort of mental health affliction or maybe a family member. And, you know, it's something that we need to talk about and we need to pray about and we something we need to get help for. There's a lot of stigma about taking medications and, you know, I'm one and Pastor Moore and I have talked about it before that, you know, God, God invented medication, you know. Um, so... there is help, there is healing, and our God is a God who sees. In the song that we're going to hear, I just have to read um, these lyrics to you. Um, The last chorus, he says, I will be a ring of fire around you, and I will be the glory in your midst, and the power of my presence will bring you to your knees, and I will lift you up again, for I am the God who sees I am the God who sees. I am the God who sees you in your wilderness, sees you in your brokenness when you're feeling lonely. I'm the God who sees in the desert places, in your empty spaces. I'm the God who sees. I'm nearer than you dare believe. Here in the very air you breathe, I am the God who sees you. God never takes his eye off of us, even when we can't feel him. He is moving. He has a plan, and he knows, and he's going to lift you up again. So if you're in any kind of valley, I'm here to remind you that he will lift you up again. Can we hear the song? Thank you. (laughs) 